The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor, and I'm really grateful that you would uh, take time out of your uh, day to, to join us in worship this morning. Uh, really, really thankful that you're here. And uh, I appreciate as well the willingness of our church family uh, to do what's necessary in order for us to gather. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, if you are new and want to be known, you can fill out a Connect card. It's the card that you find in the seat back in front of you. Uh, just fill that out at any point during the gathering. And uh, you can place it in the black boxes in the back of the room there on your way out. If you're watching online this morning and uh, you're new around here as well, you can go to the website you see there, mdcashville.org slash connect. And let us know who you are and how we can pray for you, get you involved, that kind of thing. Uh, If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 8. It's where we will be this morning. And uh, David, if you get a moment and pull those lights up, that would be fantastic. So we're in the book of Acts. And uh, I recognize that not all of you have been around for our entire study of the book of Acts, so I want to catch you up just a little bit. We've taken about six weeks off uh, to do some other things, and now we're back into it for our fall study. The book of Acts is all about what what it looks like when, when the power of God is unleashed among his people, the church. And so in chapter one of the book of Acts, we saw Jesus has lived, he's died, he's risen again, and before he ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, uh, I need you to wait. Wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses. Witnesses in all Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the other parts of the earth. Then in chapters 2 and 3, here's what we see. The Holy Spirit comes in power, fills the disciples. They begin to speak in other languages they haven't learned, and yet others who who are fluent in those languages can hear the gospel in their own tongue, in their own native language. Peter, uh, who's sort of the leader of the apostles, he proclaims the gospel, and thousands upon thousands of people uh, enter the kingdom of God. These, some some miracles happen, some healings. This new community of believers, now called the church, are gathered together, and they begin to live like a family devoted to Jesus and one another. And then in chapters four through six, we start to see this pattern emerge. And the pattern is is opposition and challenge and power and growth. Every time the church faces opposition and challenge, power of God is unleashed and the church grows. And that pattern continues through chapters four through six. We see these tests that come from outside people pressing on and trying to stop or harm the church. And then we see challenges from inside, um, relational discord and some dishonesty and some things like that. But the people of God at this time, they valued boldness over comfort. They valued honesty over appearances, and they put Jesus first. All of this culminates in chapter 7, which was the end of our spring and summer study When a man named Stephen, who's not one of the apostles, he's just a normal, everyday, average Christian man uh, who who is empowered by the Spirit of God to proclaim the truth of the gospel, he advances the gospel, though it costs him his own life. He's, He's the first martyr of the Christian faith. 
And what we saw in chapter 7 was, was though he closes his eyes in death, as angry Jewish people are hurling stones at him and he's crying out for their forgiveness to his God, he closes his eyes in death and he opens them before his Savior. And what we start to see and what we're going to see today is that pain and persecution really start to ratchet up against this fledgling church. But with pain comes progress. With pain comes progress. Um, So we have a lot to get through this morning. There's 25 verses I'd like to cover. um, And I think I'd like to start just by reading them. I know it's a lot, but if you'll give me, whatever, three minutes of your time uh, to read this passage, I think it'll be helpful for us to hear it all in one chunk. And then I'll kind of break it down and we'll go through it, okay? You guys with me? All right. So if you'll join me in Acts chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1, and uh, you can follow along as I read. It'll also be on the screens. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible and you're in this room, uh, there are paperback Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you can have that one. If you'd like a nicer one, we do have a lost and found, Uh, but that one's paperback and it'll do, okay? But uh, it's important to me that if you're here on a regular basis, you don't rely on the screens, but you bring the book and have it in front of you so your own eyes can see it and you can... Highlight, underline, mark it up, do whatever you need to do, okay? Okay, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And Saul, we'll learn about him in a minute, approved of his execution. That's Stephen. Happens in chapter 7. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in that city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This then is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to be your people, grateful to be able to gather together in this room. Lord, as I mentioned earlier this morning already, so much weighs on our, on our hearts. Um, so much has happened this week in our own community and around the globe, and uh, we are a people in desperate need of you, of your spirit, of the comfort that only you can bring, of the assurance that only you can bring, of the encouragement that only you can bring. And so, Father, would you do that by your spirit and through your word now, and may we learn to trust more and more uh, in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in his beautiful name. And everybody said, amen. Uh, if you are a note taker, I'm just going to go ahead and give you uh, the point now. You can write that down and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, in these first eight verses, here's what I want you to see. Real pain. Real pain. For the first time in the book of Acts, we meet this man, Saul. Now, we were introduced to him at the end of chapter 7. Uh, But here's where we start to learn a little bit more about him. Spoiler alert, okay? Uh, If you don't know who Saul is, next week he becomes a Christian. (laughs) So uh, he actually becomes the Apostle Paul, who uh, is a prolific church planter and actually writes 14 of the 27 books that are in your New Testament. Uh, And so he he has a, a massive impact on the early Christian church. But at this point, he's still Saul. And by his own account, Saul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he checked all the boxes, and if anyone had a boast about their, uh, you know, their faith, it was him. He did it all right. Uh, he was incredibly zealous for his faith, and yet he hated Jesus, and he hated this new movement called the Christian church. He was likely part of uh, this council called the Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin, uh, which was sort of the governing council at the time. Those were the same people who had convicted Jesus of, of blasphemy and put him to death. The same people who arrested the apostles and beat them. The same people who, who, uh, who confirmed the death of Stephen. And, and with this violence, with this act of violence against Stephen, a wave of persecution, intense persecution, started against the believers. Before this time, you know, they, they would get beat up or they were arrested. They were told not to preach the gospel, but they were largely left alone. But once Stephen is stoned, uh, it, it's on. And Paul, Saul, uh, is the one who's really leading this. Um, the danger was real. The danger was real. And so, while it's noble to be willing to die for your faith, if they all die for their faith, the faith dies, right? And so, the apostles stay behind because they're like the captain. They're going to go down with the ship. But everyone else, or many other people, scatter to these surrounding towns and villages, namely Judea and Samaria, which are mentioned here in the text. Saul, we'll find out even in Acts chapter 26, he says this from his own mouth, that he was in a raging fury against the Christian church. And the text tells us here that he was ravaging the church. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Ravaging. This is like a, it's, this is a Nat Geo word. You know what I'm saying? This is a, a, a wildlife documentary word. This word literally is used for a predator tearing apart a prey. 
okay? This is what Saul was doing to the church. A, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to, um, to go on a safari in Kenya. And, uh, and so we're all in the little Land Rover, you know, and we're driving around through the bush. And we come across a pack of lions who were ravaging a wildebeest, uh, feasting on this wildebeest. And one of the lions, uh, uh, I guess, was full or whatever, and got up and started walking towards us. And literally was like the distance from me to that first chair, right? Imagine Kelly is a, ravaging a lion with blood and just walking right towards us. And uh, it was a little scary, to be honest. Uh, there were some little cubs and stuff too that were pretty cute. But my point in that is, Jesus says our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. And Saul, unbeknownst to him, is being influenced by the enemy at this point, And he is literally ravaging the church. He's going into church gatherings. Uh, he's going, invading people's homes, breaking up their community group, right? And, and, and throwing everyone in jail. And brothers and sisters, you need to know this is still happening today. Um, regardless of your political opinions about whether the U.S. should be or should not be in Afghanistan and, and what the pullout looks like and all that, we need to be people who are praying for the country of Afghanistan and more importantly, praying for the church in Afghanistan. Um, I don't know if you, you've seen any reports. There, there are some reports, it's hard to confirm things, right? But there are reports that Christians are already being martyred uh, in, in the country of Afghanistan right now by Taliban. Uh, some of you may know uh, Mindy Bells. She's a senior editor at World Magazine uh, based here in town. She, she lives here as well. And um, uh, she put out a, uh, a quote this week. She said that she'd been in touch or someone she knows had been in touch with uh, a leader of house church movement in, in the country of Afghanistan. And they received letters from the Taliban saying, we know who you are, we know what you're doing, and we're coming for you. And those house church leaders said, we're not going anywhere. Now, the church in America should be ashamed because we're complaining and whining about mass and vaccinations, and our brothers and sisters in other countries are literally putting their lives on the line just to have church. So we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Holy Spirit, protect them. But at the same time, you need to understand that God often ordains progress of the gospel through pain. In other words, okay, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, And you disciples will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Acts 1.8 becomes a reality because of Acts 8.1. There arose a great persecution against the church. It would have been easy for the Christians in Jerusalem to go, you know what, things are pretty good here. We have a big mega church. Uh, you know, all the bills are paid. And we could just be the church of Jerusalem and stop there. And that wasn't God's plan. And so he, he used pain and persecution to advance his kingdom. In fact, look at verse 4 with me of Acts chapter 8. Now those who were scattered went about what? Preaching the word. <laughs> and we're, listen, we're not talking about the professional Christians. We're not talking about the apostles here. We're talking about average, ordinary, everyday people who trusted in Jesus and fled Jerusalem because of the pain and persecution. And what did they do? They kept preaching the gospel. They kept on proclaiming 
the good news of the gospel. One of the men we meet is Philip. Philip is uh, a Greek-speaking Jew. He was a, a, a co-worker, if you will, of Stephen, who has given his life already as a martyr. If you remember to Acts chapter 6, uh, Philip and Stephen were two of those who were selected to serve the Greek-speaking widows when that controversy arose. Um, and so Philip heads to Samaria, which may not, to our minds, make you know, a hill of beans, but this is a big deal. Um, because of a previous, <clears throat> I don't want to get into all the history, but one of the times that God's people in the Old Testament were taken captive and, and made uh, 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 captives in another land, there were some Jews who were left behind, and those Jews ended up intermarrying with non-Jewish people. Uh, and so they became the Samaritans, who, according to the Jews, were half-breeds, uh, they were looked down upon. They were hated as being uh, impure and unclean and having sort of fringe theology. But the Samaritans were also shunned by Gentiles because they weren't fully Gentile. So they're sort of this little outcast group. But Jesus had a heart for them, didn't he? If you remember John chapter 4, Jesus goes to the woman at the well. He's, he, goes, he says, I have to go through Samaria. Which, which he didn't. Most people went around, but he went directly through Samaria because he had a heart for those people. And he goes to the, uh, the well, and the woman is there at noon. If you know that story, if you don't, you should read it on your own. And, and he proclaims to her uh, the truth about himself. And, and he tells her her whole life. And, and she trusts in him. She goes back to Samaria. And she tells everybody, look, t- you need to come see this man who's tell- told me everything that I've done. Uh, he, he knows my whole life. And so Philip goes there. He shares Christ. He, he loves people. And when you, when you hear, so in the text, it tells us that he went about uh, preaching the gospel, right? Uh, Philip went down to the city and proclaimed to them to the Christ. Don't think of this as Philip going and, and uh, standing on a street corner, right? And, and preaching the gospel with Bible in hand. Don't think of this as him gathering a big crowd and having a church service. Philip is an average, ordinary, everyday believer, which means he comes into town and, uh, and he finds housing, and, and they're like, hey, where are you from? And he's like, Jerusalem, you know, because I believe in Jesus, and, and, and we're being persecuted there. Oh, Jesus, isn't he the guy that came? Yeah, he is. And you know what? Let me tell you about him. And he's loving people, and he's serving people, and he's just doing normal life. He's, he's, in other words, I want you to see that he's not someone that you can't be. Any of us in our everyday lives can proclaim the Christ and, and should be. And that's, that's what he's doing. He's loving people. He's serving people. He's, he's honoring people. And he's sharing with them uh, about Jesus. And the people are receptive. And the kingdom is coming to Samaria. And the text tells us, I love this line. Look at verse 8 with me. So there was much joy in that city. I love that line. I love that line. What if God would use us to bring much joy to our city? What if God chose to use us to bring much joy to our city? Because everyone is pursuing joy in something, right? In our town, some people are, are, are pursuing joy in art, in music, uh, in the culinary world, in self-expression in their sexual identity. Uh, people are pursuing joy in, in recreation. I've told you before, you know, Asheville seems to be the place where young people go to retire. Uh, 
We have a lot of Peter Pan syndrome in this town, right? And people don't want to grow up. And so they're pursuing joy on the water or on the mountain bike trails or, or you know, out, and, and, and all those things are fine unless they are the thing you're putting your joy in. And that's your sole source of joy. Only Jesus brings true and lasting joy, which is why we go, which is why we share, which is why we invite people into communities, why we invite people to church. It's, it's why we're starting the, the Alpha ministry where people can come and, and uh, in a safe environment, ask questions about God and about faith. It's why we serve those people in our city who need to be served. It's why we're willing to endure pain so that others might find joy in Christ. And I wonder if you've ever considered how God might, might use your trial as a testimony. Real pain. Some of you ex have experienced great loss. Some of you have experienced massive failure. All of us have reaped the consequences of our own stupidity. And how might God want to use all of our mistakes, all of our failures, all of the loss that we've experienced as a testimony about the goodness and faithfulness of God, even though? Even though. So that's real pain. Um, you guys hanging in? Now let's, let's look at the next section here. In verses 9 through 13, uh, we see real power real power. Take a sip of water real quick. Now we're introduced to this man named Simon. And it tells us in verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now when it says that he had practiced magic, it doesn't mean he like, was like, is this your card? Right? It wasn't pulling rabbits out of the hat or sawing people in half, what it means, some of your translations might say Simon the sorcerer, is that Simon was involved in the occult. Uh, he, he had somehow accessed demonic power and divination, and we don't know what he was practicing or what he was doing, but, uh, but, but he was involved in occultism, not unlike many people in our own city, by the way. But whatever he did, he was, he, he was blowing people away. And he had developed this reputation. And, and I love in verse 9, he kind of started to believe his own press, uh, saying that he himself was somebody great. So they're going, man, you're great. And he's like, I am, okay? This is who Simon is. He starts to believe his own press. He thinks he's got some connection to the gods, uh, and, and there's great power that he has. But here's what happens. Look down at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Um, Philip shows up and he's proclaiming the gospel in, in, in word and in deed, right? He's, God's using him to heal people miraculously. He's telling people about Jesus. And, and 
this real power, real power from God shows up. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? This is what's happening, and it's compelling, right? And, and so Philip is telling people about how Jesus' message is one of grace and not works. He's telling them ab- about God's love for sinners, that we all fall short in all the various ways by our actions and our deeds and the intent of our hearts and, and how Jesus came, God sent Christ to live a, a, a sinless, perfect life that none of us could live, that he died in our place as a substitute for our sin, taking God's judgment and wrath on himself, that he rose again from the grave, conquering our enemies of sin, death, and hell, that he paid our debt in full, and that he's now seated at the right hand of God, and that he's inviting us into his kingdom by repentance and faith. And as Peter, excuse me, as Philip proclaims that message, people are believing it. It is compelling, and they are trusting in Christ, and they're being baptized. That's a big deal. Baptism being this symbol of faith in Christ, the first act of obedience in which we say, I belong to Jesus and I am going to die to my old self, right? This is a symbol of when we're put under the water, it is death to the old self, the old life. And then you're raised from that grave as a new creation, right? I was talking to someone yesterday from this congregation who expressed a desire to be baptized. And so we're going to put one on the calendar. And if you have trusted in Christ and you want to take that next step and be baptized and identify with God's people publicly, then I would love to talk with you about that. You can just write baptism on the back of your connect card and let us know and we'll follow up with you. Um, but, But this is a big deal. And it's so compelling. Revival is sweeping through Samaria. As people repent of their sin and they trust in Christ and they are baptized and it's so compelling, the text tells us that even Simon, the magician, believes and is baptized. Now, there's a lot of disagreement in the Christian world about whether uh, Simon's conversion to Christ is genuine or not. And many people say that it is not because of the way that Peter later will see rebukes Simon, I'm in the minority here, but I'm going to give you my case for why I think Simon's conversion was genuine. And I'm going to start by telling you that even Peter himself was rebuked by Jesus. (laughs) Remember when Jesus called Peter Satan? That's kind of a big deal. And then later, he was rebuked by Paul for essentially being a racist. And, and, And Paul had to say, you're not walking in line with or in step with the gospel. So I am in the minority here. I'm willing to be wrong, but I'm going to give you my case. If I probably will never write a Bible commentary, but if I do, I'm going to include this in here, okay? My case for why Simon's conversion to Jesus was genuine. And you may not care at all, and so give me five minutes, tune out, you can tune back in. Otherwise, stick with me, because I want to, I'm going to paint my case for why I think uh, Simon's conversion was genuine. You ready? Now, let me say this. I think it was genuine, albeit immature. Okay? He has a, he has a lot of growth coming, which is what we're going to look at in our third point. Um, but but here's, here's my first reason for why I think his conversion was genuine. For someone as full of himself as Simon was, saying that he himself was someone great, to participate in the act of baptism would have been humiliating. I think of Naaman, Remember the story of Naaman who, who develops leprosy 
and he goes to the prophet, and the prophet tells him, all you need to do is dip in this water seven times. And he's like, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. I could pay for this. I am somebody. Give me something else I can do to take this away. Now, eventually he does it, and, and God humbles him. But for someone who's believed his own press, for someone who is so proud of himself, for someone who thinks he is great, to have to get into water and say, this is a grave, right? Jesus is the real great one, and you're dead to your old self, and now you're alive as a new creation. I understand that false baptisms happen from time to time, but I don't believe that Simon would have ever gone through with that unless there was some genuine conversion in his soul, okay? Secondly, the text even tells us here, verse 9, there was a man named Simon, Simon who had previously practiced magic. So he's previously means he's not doing it anymore, which seems to indicate a change in behavior. He's no longer practicing magic. He's no longer uh, dabbling in occultism because he realizes that there's no such thing as neutral spirituality. There's good and there's evil. And he's rejecting evil and he's trusting in Jesus who is the only good one. Third, Philip, though he wasn't a seminary-trained pastor, right? He had been part of thousands of baptisms. You remember in Acts chapter 2 when these thousands of people trust in Christ and are baptized, okay? I don't know that the 12 could have done all of those baptisms by themselves, right? So Philip perhaps is part of that. He's at least witnessed thousands of baptisms. He knows what a genuine conversion is. I'm sure that there were people who said they believed that the apostles were like, nope, you're not getting in the water because you don't actually trust in Christ. And so I don't believe that Philip would have baptized a guy who didn't genuinely believe. And if he did, how do we know that this next story that we'll see next week about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, how do we know that that was legit? Also, I don't know what number I'm on. Four. Four. Uh, here's, here's the most important one in my mind. After his baptism, the text tells us, uh, look at verse 13 again. After Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. The word therefore continued is the same word that we see in Acts chapter 1 when it says that they were all together and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the, that's the language of discipleship. He continued with, he was devoted to. Um, Acts chapter 1 verse 14 actually said, let me, let me read it so I get it right. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 2, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Same word. This is the language of discipleship. In other words, here's what, here's what Philip did. He said, you know what? Um, this man, Simon, has trusted in Christ. I've baptized him. And now he has latched himself on to Philip. Simon says, I need to learn from you how to follow Jesus. Will you disciple me? And wherever you go, I'm going to go. I'm going to continue with you. I'm going I'm to stick to you like glue. I'm going to devote myself to you in the sense that I'm devoting myself to Christ, but, but you're my leader, right? And so you're going to disciple me. Um, now, in, his, in, in Simon's defense, we'll see in a minute, the Holy Spirit had not fully fallen yet as it had uh, in other places. And so he's got some immaturity in him. But here's my whole point in all this, okay? So you can believe me or not believe me. I don't care. Here's the point. If there was anyone in Samaria, in Samaria uh, who, who you would have thought, this, this cat will never believe the gospel. It had to be Simon, right? <laughs> if there was anybody where you were like, I'm telling you, like, if that dude trusts in Jesus, God is doing something major, okay? It was Simon. This guy who was so boastful and, and involved in all kinds of wickedness. 
But even Simon, according to the text, was amazed at the real power of God on display. And so God humbled him. God brought him to repentance and faith. Later, as I mentioned, we'll see Saul, this murderer of Christians, give his life to Christ. So tell me why you think that, that, that the person you know who is, who is far away from God is never going to come to faith in him. Tell me why there's someone in your sphere of influence who is impossibly far away from God. Tell me why God can't save that person. Tell me why God's powerless to bring that person to saving faith in Christ. We all know people who are impossibly far from God. But you know what's true? So were you. Just because you grew up going to church and like doing Sunday school and RAs and GAs, whatever that stuff is, uh, Awana, right? It did not make you any closer to God than the most rebellious sinner out there. Because it's not about your work, it's about the grace of Jesus. So the fact that any of us clowns have trusted in Christ is a miracle, So there are people that we know who are impossibly far from God and they are one step from faith just like you were. And that step is the Holy Spirit bringing someone from death to life. Amen? Okay. So here's, keep praying. This is real power, the power of God unto salvation, the gospel. Keep praying, keep loving, keep serving, keep seizing every opportunity to share the hope of Christ with them. I'm not talking about shoehorning it into every conversation when you're talking about, you know, the weather and the dark clouds and Gethsemane, like, you don't, like, you don't have to do that. You just love them genuinely and share the hope of Christ that's within you and trust that God is going to do what only God can do, which is to raise sinners from death to life. Okay, one more. I got 10 minutes. One more point. Here we go. Buckle up. Verse 14, I want you to see real progress. Real progress. Now, when the apostles, verse 14, at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the of the, of the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to stop there. Peter rebukes him as I read already, but I'm going to stop there. I want you to see real progress. The apostles get the word that the gospel has come to Samaria which is a big deal, right? It's almost unbelievable that the gospel would flourish in Samaria, except Jesus. <laughs> he already went there. He already did it. And, and, and now it's happening again. So they send Peter and John to verify. And the text tells us that the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen, which, which doesn't make a lot of sense to some of us. We're like, what is that? What? Because the way that I've read the Bible, the Holy Spirit is always involved in salvation. Uh, The book of Ephesians reminds us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses until the Holy Spirit makes us alive, brings us from death to life, gives us the ability to 
uh, have our eyes open to the reality of God and Christ and, and, and what the gospel means and to give us the ability to repent of sin and trust in Christ. That's all the work of the Spirit. And once we trust in Christ, we're then, Ephesians says, sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. These are the words of Paul. So what's happening here? In this instance, and I believe in Acts chapter 19, which is actually, ironically, the city of Ephesus, uh, there are two instances, at least two, there may be more, but there's at least two that I'm aware of, where people trusted in Christ, but, but the, the manifestation of the Spirit had not yet fully come upon them. And, and, and here's why. At least for the Samaritans, who were separated from the, the, the Jews, um, the danger in them coming to faith and it not being confirmed by the Jerusalem church is already they were separated. They worshiped on two different mountains. They had two different temples. Uh, they had two different scriptures. And, and so if the Samaritans become Christians, the danger is they just do the Samaritan Christian stuff, right? And so then they have the Samaritan Christian church and the Jerusalem Christian church. Um, and, and God, in his supreme foreknowledge, sends Peter and John to pray over them, to confirm that they have genuinely trusted in Christ, that, they, uh, that it's the same gospel they believe, that they are part of this same new covenant people, and they receive the Spirit fully, and, and, and we don't see any evidence in the text, but we assume that there were manifestations of the Spirit that were similar to what happened earlier in Acts, which is confirmation that they belong to the same Christ, that they belong to the same church. That likely also happened in Ephesus because it was a Gentile city. And so as Gentiles are, are full Gentiles are brought into the fold uh, and trust in Christ, um, when Peter, uh, Paul comes in in Acts 19 and he says, uh, have you received the spirit? And they go, what spirit? <laughs> they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so he prays on them and they receive the spirit. So in these two unique instances, God was expanding his kingdom and waiting until an apostle could confirm that there was genuine faith and then give them uh, full manifestation of the spirit. So that there would be no question that both the Samaritans and the Ephesians were part of this new, uh, new covenant community, okay? That's my best shot at why this happened. I think that's uh, legit. But now I want you to see the immaturity of Simon. So this is still under real progress. L look what happens here. Simon is coming from occultism, he's coming from magic, he's coming from divination, and he has seen the real power of God on display, and he's intrigued, and he wants the power. But look again at verse 13, uh, not, not verse 13, sorry, verse, uh, where was it? 19. What, is, what does he say? Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. People accuse Simon of being greedy and wanting this power for himself so that he can make a name for himself, but the text tells us he wants to share it with other people. He wants to give this, he just wants to be the one who's the conduit to, to release the Spirit into other people's lives, which is another reason why I think his, his conversion was genuine. He's just immature. He didn't understand He wants, to, he wants the power, but so he can empower others. He, in other words, he's trying to live a new life with an old playbook. Just like you and me. <laughs> he, he's, he's demonstrating a lack of maturity here. In his old way of life, he would negotiate. He would haggle. He would bribe to get what he wanted, right? And so he's thinking to himself, well, this is just how you do it. 
I see this power that the, the apostles have. I want this power. I want to give it away. What do I got to do? Right? Let's make a deal. All right? He's like pulling out his billfold. What do we get? How, let's get this done. You know? That's his old way of being. But what does Jesus tell us? You don't put new wine into old wineskins. This is a new way. And so Peter rebukes him sharply, I'll admit. It is a sharp rebuke. Verse 20, may your silver perish with you. <laughs> because you, that is kind of like Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan, right? I mean, this is as sharp a rebuke as you can have. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Now, the word there for matter is the word ministry. So he says, he's not, in my opinion, not questioning his salvation, but saying you can't participate in this ministry like this, uh, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness, so that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven of you. That's a very important line, the intent of your heart. We understand that sin is not just bad actions, but it's our motives as well. Another evidence that perhaps Simon genuinely has faith. He is no longer practicing magic, but the intent of his heart is not right. And so Peter's rebuking him and calling him to repentance. Now, here's the reality, friends. The gospel of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a free and amazing gift. But learning how to live a gospel-fueled life is hard work. It's like, um, I've used this example uh, once before, but how many of you in the room are right-handed? R- raise your right hand. <laughs> okay, so there's a few you lefties. Okay, for most of us that are right-handed, uh, doing right-handed things, we do easily, naturally, right? You brush your teeth, you write with a pencil or, or a pen, you chop up your vegetables or whatever, you use scissors, and it's, and it's easy and natural and almost thoughtless because you've done it a million times and you're confident with your ability in your right hand. Now, if you've ever injured your dominant hand and you have to go using your left hand to write or to cut vegetables or use scissors, it, ooh, that's hard, right? It's not natural. Uh, it's not intuitive. You have to slow down. You have to be deliberate. You have to take your time. The gospel, in a way, is a left-handed message for right-handed people. And our whole lives become course correction back to the gospel because the gospel impacts everything. Uh, It impacts our our thinking. It impacts the way that we speak. It impacts our motives. It impacts the way that we think about vocation and relationship and money and and sexuality um, and, and everything. A pastor I know... um, they had a recovery ministry uh, for guys kind of getting out of jail and, and, and getting off addictions. And so these, these folks would participate in their church gathering. And uh, he tells the story of one time uh, he got done preaching and this kind of rough around the edges guy came up to him and said, you know, he's evangelical, right? So this guy calls him father, which is like, what? You know, he, he goes, father, father, hell of a sermon, father, right? He's rough around the edges. He, he doesn't realize that you can't use that, you shouldn't be using, right? Not as did in front of all you, but um, there's progress. It never feels quite completely natural or obvious to us, but we make progress. 
I, I believe here we're seeing Simon progressing, right? So he says, hey, will you pray for me? He feels so ashamed of what he's done. Will you pray for me because I'm not worthy of coming before the Lord? He, he, he still quite doesn't understand. Right? He doesn't know that you can go directly to God because of Jesus. He doesn't know that you can ask the Lord for clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't know uh, that, that you, can be, you can ask for and be assured of forgiveness because Jesus died in your place. And that all of your sins were future. I said this last week, right? He paid for everything past, present, and future because on the cross, all of your sins were future. And if Jesus said, it is finished, it means all of them. So you can be assured that you are forgiven. And so perhaps Simon is, is, is seeing progress here as God is working on him. But, but if you can allow me to use another way of using the word progress, uh, the text tells us here, on their way back, verse 25 when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. People all around Samaria are now hearing and responding to the gospel. And so the kingdom of God is progressing. It's growing. It's advancing. There is real progress as both the gospel goes deeper into individuals' lives and it goes wider into communities. And that's our hope and intent. That's why our mission statement says maturing and multiplying, right? Because we want to see people grow in maturity as the gospel goes deeper into our lives. And then we want to see the gospel go wider as it multiplies out from here into the rest of Western North Carolina. People like Simon growing in maturity and Jesus's mission continuing to expand. So we see real progress. Now, uh, that's all I got for you today. Let me, let me wrap this up with a few questions we'll put on the screen. Um, and by the way, today we've chosen not to um, administer communion. Uh, if that's something that there are little cups in your chair, if that's something you feel compelled you need to do today, I'm not going to stop you, but I'm not, we're not going to do it as a whole church today just to take an extra um, uh, COVID protocol. Uh, but let me put these questions up and then the band's going to return and lead us in some singing as we uh, wrap up our gathering. Number one, I just feel compelled that I need to ask this question to all of you. Have I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ? Have I surrendered my life? Have I repented of sin and self, turning away from trust in myself? Have I placed my hope and my trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone? And how do I know? Like, I, I, I want so desperately, there are some of you who kind of, you've been in church a long time and you just assume that you have a relationship with Christ and maybe you don't. And today we got to see Simon trusting Christ. We got to see the gospel go to the Samaritans, these very religious people, right, who, who heard the gospel for the first time and, and actually repented uh, and believed. And so just, just ask yourself the question, have I surrendered my life to Jesus? Am I a, a follower of Christ? Am I a Christian? Do I know that I'm saved? Do I know that, that, I, that Christ is my Savior? Second question, how might God want to use my story, my pain, to bring joy to this city? Is there a testimony he might, he might give me that's based on trial, struggle, failure, right? That's, that's my own story that God might use to share about his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his tenderness, his ability to restore. God, God doesn't waste anything. And so all of your pain is part of your story that God is intending for you to use to, to share of his goodness. So how might God want, you, want to use my story to bring joy to this city? Third question, 
Who in my life seems impossibly far from God? Someone's face has come up in your mind. Someone's name uh, has has popped into your heart. And and I just ask you to commit yourself to praying regularly for that person. I have a couple of those people in my life, and it's interesting. Even this week, I saw them, and um, we've had sort of stonewalled conversations for a long time. And all of a sudden, uh, just talking about marriage, uh, they started to ask me questions about my perspective on marriage, and I started sharing my Christian perspective on covenant versus contract, and they were blown away. Whoa, that's, man, that's really important. That's really meaningful, and that led to future other conversations about how our church functions, and they've never asked these kind of questions before, right? So just trying to seize every opportunity. Who seems impossibly far from God, and will you commit yourself to praying for them? Uh, and then fourth and finally, where do I sense the Lord at work making progress in me? Where is the Spirit bringing maturity and bringing growth or identifying areas in your own life where, you're, where you need to grow? Revealing, that's His mercy to us, to reveal to us the, the places in our, in our hearts and our motives and our uh, anxieties and our fears and our insecurities that need growth. So where do I sense Him at work in me, making progress in me? And, and where do I sense Him making progress through me? That I'm more open about what I believe, that, I'm, that I'm, I'm building relationships with non-believers, that I'm on mission with God, and he's, he's making progress in his kingdom through me. So I'm going to leave these questions up for a minute. You can take a picture of the screen. You can write them down. Um, but I would it, it just implore you to think through these things, to pray over them, to ask the Lord to reveal some answers to you uh, there. Uh, I'm going to pray for you now, and then the band's going to come back up and lead us in song, and then we'll have a couple announcements uh, and a benediction. I'll get you out of here, okay? Father, I thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. I pray that it has been a fruitful and beneficial study for your people. Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. And so I just pray that in this moment as we contemplate um, uh, the story of Philip and Simon and uh, the gospel's advance into Samaria, uh, that there would be something that would would resonate with our souls, that you would help us to trust you more, to grow uh, to maturity in our faith, and, and to see the needs of others around us, to see the lostness around us, to be people of prayer and proclamation uh, that your gospel might advance, even to those who seem hopelessly lost. We know that no one is beyond the reach of Christ. And so help us to honor you with our lives, with our words, with our hearts, and uh, be honored and glorified in our time of response now as we sing, as we pray, as we give. Uh, we, we ask that you would be honored. We, we ask this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.